Welcome back to Tales from the Subterranean Playground, brought to you by Immersify Recording Services, LLC. This is Season 1, Episode 6, and I'm your host, Mark Allen Jay. Today's episode features a conversation that I had with Jesse Thomas Morgan. Jesse is a board-certified music therapist who works at C.S. Mott Children's Hospital in Ann Arbor, Michigan. He didn't necessarily start out with the goal of becoming a music therapist. However, certain events happened in his life that sort of re-vectored him down that road. Call it a conscious decision informed by fate or something else. His primary focus is on community music therapy. At Mott, he works with patients and their caregivers on the pediatric cardiothoracic unit. Also, if you're ever in the lobby of C.S. Mott, you may very well hear Jesse tickling the ivories on the baby grand piano that's situated in the lobby there. He also works at Sophie's Place. And if you haven't heard of Sophie's Place, it's something remarkable. It's actually a recording studio within the hospital proper. As you might expect from someone who's been playing piano for decades, Jesse's also a gigging musician, and he plays in a band called The Crossed Lines. He created and managed for six years a nonprofit known as Community Records Ypsilanti, or CRY for short, which was a youth-focused organization with its emphasis on building community. And incidentally, this is how I first met Jesse, and you'll hear about that in the show. If you haven't figured him out by now, know that Jesse's main concern is in helping his fellow humans. He's a proud father to his children, Stuart, Naomi, and Phoebe. And he's also a good friend of mine and a mensch. Here we go. You've been playing for, what, 30 years, 40 years? Yeah, 40 years. 40 years, I I was 10 years old when I started playing piano. Wow. Honestly, I think almost 99% of my relationships have stemmed from my relationship to music. 99%, you know, and the rest is like family, you know. I truly can't imagine my life without music. I was off my musical path for a while, or at least it's, I think I was, you know, I could be wrong. I wanted to go to school for music, but I couldn't, I couldn't come up with a reason or a job that I would have when I graduated, mm. you know. And, um, and so I love to read, so I, I, I went into English. And I, I played music all the time on the side, but teaching English, like 10th grade English, you, you end up with stacks and stacks of papers. Even if you just do one assignment, you've got 180 students for one day, one paragraph. That's 180 paragraphs. You have to, yeah, you can skim them, but so it starts to pile up. I became severely depressed because I was not playing music on the side. Mm. All, all of my time was right. was doing Sunk. this job, which is uh, an important job. And you know, it was not wasted time because I learned about teaching. I learned about myself. I learned some hard lessons. Mm. Um, to be a classroom teacher is one of the hardest jobs there is. Sure. And it's you have to be extremely dedicated and passionate about it. I have so much respect for teachers. Mm-hmm. And so I, I learned that. I learned how to teach. I learned uh, different methods of teaching, et cetera. So I learned a ton of great stuff. It was difficult at the time because my true meaning for existence 
is to engage with music. I mean, that is mm -hmm. what life is for me. That is my spiritual practice, I guess sure. if you say. And I wasn't doing that. And I, so I, I ended up going to see a therapist. And, you know, that's where I had my first experience in therapy with uh, like an image, a, a, like a really strong image that it was emotionally charged. That was really helpful and also really kind of frustrating because I, I kept trying to chase that. I kept trying to find that image again. Um, I had this image of this steel ball or this lead ball that was like full of all of these intense emotions. So anyway. That's a realization where mm -hmm. you transformed it into a physical representation. Yes. The idea that you can't get your hands on this ball. Well, what it became was it was, it, it was very heavy. The, the therapist had asked me where I felt this depression or where I felt this feeling. And then I pointed to it. And he's like, imagine, you know, what do you see in that within there? Imagine you see something. If an image comes up, tell me what it is. And it, it was this, this ball. It was a lead ball at first. And it was very heavy. And it was my depression. It was my depression. And I've worked with it over the years in different ways with different therapists. And, and um, it has transformed. And it still is transforming. Mm -hmm. And it's, that's one of the the two uh, really transformative images I've had in, in therapy. And it's one of the reasons why I realize how important our imaginations are and how useful they can be in our journey and healing ourselves. Anyway, my dad's parents died within nine days of each other. And my grandmother died from um, lung cancer. And I was there when that happened. And that's when I realized, like, there was a moment where she was th there and then gone. And I saw her body there, but I realized she is actually gone. Like, she's not in there. And that was quite a lesson to learn. Mm -hmm. Like, her spirit left her body. That's all I know. She was no longer animated with her personality, her self. So that, for me, was like, oh, hell no, I do not have a lot of time. This is going to happen to me at some point. Mm -hmm. I need to go on my path. There is no long, I'm not living this other path for any longer. So I love teaching, and I went back to school for music, which is what I wanted to do in the first place, and I got out loans, and I was 30 years old and uh, moved into my mom and stepdad's uh, basement. Whew, that was a... That was a humbling experience. I can imagine. But I'm so glad I did it mm -hmm. because I'm here today and I sometimes pinch myself at work. Because the first time I heard about Sophie's Place at Mott, I was like, this is a full-on recording studio, professional, and it is in a hospital, a children's hospital. I have to work there. And I didn't know how, and I and it for the longest the longest time it didn't seem like that was going to happen, but it ended up happening. Yeah, I, I, and I'm there now. Yeah, and, and I get to work with I work with babies, not in the studio, but um, in the pediatric cardiothoracic unit. That is a just an amazing place mm. to see people in this people in this place dealing with their heart issues. You know. And getting transplants. I work with young people who are getting transplants, babies that get transplants, teenagers. 
I can't, I can't even. And uh, we record their heartbeats before and after the transplants. And they, they choose, they have the option, people have the option of choosing a song for me to record or one of their music therapists to record over their heartbeat. They've chosen some cool songs. Like one kid chose uh, the Imperial Death March, you know, the from Star Wars. <laughs> Darth Vader. Um, uh. <laughs> kids have have left open, you know, spaces, sung a chorus to their favorite song and then left open a space for uh, themselves and their friends to rap to over their own heartbeat. Fantastic. I love that because it feels it feels like such a, a kind of celebration of that, you know, yes. that whole kind of moving beyond, moving above. Wow. Yeah, so heartbeat recordings are something that people can wrap their heads around, and mm-hmm. it, they're very... Uh, it's very touching. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm getting reclumped here. I'm just, <laughs> and that's a part of the job is getting used to that. I don't think yeah. you ever get used to it, but so it's brought me into the um, area. I am a part of a grief group right now. It's called Beautiful Grievers. It's run by Jessica uh, Kilborn, mm-hmm. and um, we just show up once a week for five weeks. And she creates playlists. She does yoga with us. She's got all kinds of uh, techniques to to help people who are grieving. And we also have, we share and we listen and we bring our grief there. And that's the most important thing is that we just make time for it and show up to, to engage with it. And it's necessary. And I'm learning how to do that. I'm starting to think that getting older is just learning how to deal with grief because, you know, I don't know. People, the older you get, the more people you know that die, the more parts of yourself that fail. And so we grieve those things that we loved. You know, I grieved my relationship. I had a 10-year marriage, and I had to grieve that. Uh, Two years ago, my dad died by suicide. But um, It's a lot. Yeah. And... uh, but then when something, when a major traumatic event happens, then it, they kind of compile, you know, they kind of compound. I just think it's an essential for, for, I know it's essential for me, and that's all I can speak to of, with authority, is that for me, it's essential that I have a process for dealing with grief and that I, I uh, respect it and make time for it just to incorporate it into my life. And like everything, there's even with um, horrible experiences, there are some gifts. There are mm-hmm. gifts that come from these things. You're right. As you get older, in stark contrast to when you're young, when you're young, first of all, <laughs> your concept of time and age are completely different. Yes. And you are invincible. And you have all the answers. That's the beauty. <laughs> yes. That's the beauty of being Young, no one can tell you because you already know. That's what you tell yourself. But then as we age and we realize when it's something or someone, I mean, I've grieved over dogs as much as I've grieved over some people because I had very close connections. Mm -hmm. And what does that go back to? That keeps going back to, I think, that whole idea of being understood and feeling like you're in a healthy place emotionally, right? Yeah. at least now, I think therapy is far less stigmatized than it was when I was totally. 
when I was a teenager, you know, and I would have definitely benefited because I had some very Me you know, difficult years in my teenage years. And it, w- it would have been a good thing, but I wasn't really in the cards, right? And I don't know how it would have changed things. Sandy is, uh, you know, she's a therapist and she'll say stuff like, you have to remember that when you what if, you have to what if both ways, which is a really good way to look at that things. That is. Like you said, sometimes good comes out of it. Sometimes your experience yeah. with your grandmother, it's like, I have to do. Yeah. I have to move this forward. I have to move this vehicle that I call myself forward down this path and figure out, you know, either why I'm supposed to be here or what's going to make me happy. And if I'm lucky, it's going to be those two things tied up in a neat little bow. It doesn't always happen, you know. And I, and I think about that. I think about people who have jobs that are very unfulfilling and how difficult it is to go to a job you really don't like. You yeah, know? I've You're been all... there before. And uh, that's what makes me so grateful that I have this job that has music and and therapy built into it. Can I say one thing? Yeah, because I, I I really okay. Well, I just wanted to make sure we covered community music therapy. Yeah, because that is my driving force. That came out of my my ex was you know she was like, what are the things that really motivate you? And I was like, yeah, what are the things that motivate me? What are my skills, et cetera, et cetera? And I narrowed it down to like. Building community, like helping people build relationships, helps everyone. And that's, so that, that's something that I can do, and that's something that I can use music. Mm-hmm. And so community music therapy is the type of music therapy that I do. I am a community music therapist at the Great Lakes Regional Music Therapy Conference in March coming up. I'm going to be presenting on community music therapy in a pediatric hospital. Oh, and, um, that's great. As far as I know, that's, that's never been done before. Good for you. And I am learning how to do it as I do it, but there are certain principles, and it's a creative process. Mm-hmm. And I'm seeing it happen. I'm seeing the benefits of it already, and I've just started. You know, <laughs> I, I'm seeing the how building relationships across departments and and disciplines is benefiting everyone involved. Let me read the official definition of music therapy. Yeah, I want to hear Because I would be this. remiss if I did not okay. start with this. Music therapy, an allied health profession, is the clinical and evidence-based use of music interventions to accomplish individualized goals within a therapeutic relationship by a credentialed professional who has completed an approved music therapy program. To be a music therapist, you need to get a bachelor's degree, and you need to do between 1,000 and 1,200 hours of internship, unpaid, Wow! (laughs) unfortunately. I don't know if it has to be unpaid. I think it can be paid, but it's usually unpaid. But regardless, you got to do the hours. And so there's a lot of training involved. Yeah. Well, just the definition, obviously, there are a lot of very uh, stringent criteria that are in that. And I'm assuming it's a licensed profession. Is that the case? Yeah. We, you, you, apply to, um, you apply to become a, or you take a test to become a board-certified music okay. therapist. So after you've completed the schooling and the internship, uh, you take a test And um, once you pass, you are a board-certified music therapist for, I think it's five years. And then you have a certain amount of uh, continuing education. The requirements suggest to me that there's a fair amount of breadth 
Yes. Could you speak to that? Could you maybe tell us a little bit about when you were doing the program Mm -hmm. that you found the most beneficial? I'm curious about that. Really what I can speak to is my own experience. I'm not claiming to speak for the whole profession. In my experience, what has been the most beneficial in my personal training to become a music therapist includes both the official training and also my training in life, you know, just my experiences uh, with Community Records, which yeah, is where we Yeah, I met. remember. Yeah, from Frog, Frog Island. We were in Frog Island, Ipsy. and I'm like, this guy is walking around with a head in a box. <laughs> <laughs> what in the heck is going on yeah. here? And um, so... Actually, my first thought was, this guy must be a creative individual. I need to find out what's going on here. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, should you explain your uh, the mannequin head and what that is? The, for, to our listeners? listeners? Or? Yeah. Probably, yeah. <laughs> but th- that's where we left it. Like I, I, did, I didn't, and I, and I, <laughs> it was right. not a real head. Right. Just for clarification <laughs> purposes, I was not in the movie Seven. But anyway, for those listening who don't know, this podcast is coming to you in glorious monaural because it's the easiest way to do a podcast and it makes it essentially platform independent the the head to which jesse is referring was actually a microphone that's what we're talking about and it has individual ears as you do and inside of each of those ears is a microphone if we were tracking this in binaural jesse would appear in your left ear and i'd appear in your right ear but you would perceive it as though you were in the room with us. Hmm. So you can listen to binaural in this room and get pretty much the full effect. But in a traditional home space with uh, speakers, there's so many reflections that smear the placement. So in order to experience that effect, you have to be wearing headphones or build a room like this, which is a lot. Well, congratulations. And I really think... This space could benefit a lot of people through the lens of music therapy. Right on. Let's get back to Frog Island and that first meeting, okay? Because it was odd. I think Akili and I were there, one of my closest partners in community records, and a guy who uh, taught me so much about engaging people and curriculum, like mm-hmm. his, his ideas for the curriculum that we created were spot on. And that was that was also about getting kids involved at an early age in music and the music creation process, right? We yes, we worked with kids. Uh, let me just talk a little bit about community records. It was our mission was to build community through music, and so one of the ways we did that, our bread and butter at the time was working with youth and after-school programs, homeless shelters, summer camps, community centers, Mm. just wherever youth were being served. And it was youth from economically depressed areas, oppressed peoples. We would go in and, and ask young people what their role in the community was. Then we would ask what the pressing issues were in their communities, things that needed to be fixed. And the solutions, we would work together as a group, and we would have the folks who led these discussions were really excellent in the way they engaged youth. And so um, two of the main folks we worked with were um, Akili Jackson and Anthony Morgan. 
who recently was a council member on in Ward 3 in Ipsy. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. We would talk about what the possible solutions were to the issues in their community. And firstly, when we asked them what their role in the community was, most of them had never been asked that. Um, also kind of consistent when you think about underserved communities because, you know, it's true. The people, they, they don't want to know necessarily. That's right. And so we, um, we asked them what their pressing issues were, and we come up with solutions as a group. And it's always a lively discussion when you got a group, of, a classroom full of uh, young people. Mm-hmm. Usually we worked with between like four and, and 20, usually folks at a time. But one time we did, a, um, I would book the gigs. We, uh, one of them was, a, we worked with 250 kids in the auditorium at Willow Run when they were still Willow Run Community Schools. <laughs> wow. And then um, once we had those solutions, the solutions became the, the choruses for the songs. And then we would back, the, back up the choruses with details in the verses. And then we would break into groups and some people would write like individual raps or become singers or work on the beat. Um, we even had one... We got a grant to do an album. We did two albums, one with a business uh, group at EMU and another with Ozone House. And uh, we did did a whole album working with their clients. And one of the kids, when we broke off into groups, he became the businessman. He became the manager, basically, for the band. And we got T-shirts made up and everything, you know. So we, we were capitalizing on people's strengths. Right. Uh, asset-based. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And everyone wants their voice to be heard. Yes. That's a given, even if they don't necessarily express that. I think it's um, only natural that some people would observe and say, all right, I I see kind of the scope of this entity. I think I'm a good fit in the managerial side. Mm -hmm. You know, and then someone else who's saying, "I, I, I love writing lyrics. I just, you know, and that's what I love about the whole creative element of music and especially when you have people who haven't really had that opportunity before so it's they don't know empowering. the gifts that they have it's you know? so empowering yes and it's what a what a great thing to be present there when that light bulb goes on and that young person realizes yeah. that you know they have this skill and it's being seen and it's being treasured and supported yep I wish that everybody could have that Yeah, that was, that was a great – I remember how strange, you know, when I went to Frog Island and, and I didn't expect to encounter you or – I don't know if that was – was that Elvis Fest or was that – It might have been. We did go to Elvis Fest, which was kind of a weird – Yes, it was. Weird mix because it was very uh, – a very um, – it's, it's non-urban. <laughs> yeah, very very rockabilly kind of driven – and yeah, non-urban is a good way to put it. <laughs> that whole thing, I, I, I can see from that alone, and it wasn't a surprise for me when I was reading about on social media when you were speaking about getting into music therapy. I thought this seems like a natural progression to what Jesse was doing yes. prior. So to me, it was like it seems like a good fit for this cat. And then you ended up going. You ended up going to Eastern, where Eastern. There aren't that many. Um, the Western and Eastern are the 
places in Michigan that have music therapy That's programs. It. Yes. <clears throat> so That's Eastern's a couple blocks from my house. That was a no-brainer. Right. <laughs> Walking distance. <laughs> I had, uh, you know, three young kids, and uh, yeah. I wasn't moving anywhere. So. Yeah. So in terms of the program proper, maybe speak to some specifics. When you were actually going through the program, certain things that really registered with you, something to which you really felt connected. Are there some things that really stand out from that experience? Oh, yeah. Um, music, of course. Sure. Um, and so you, you need a degree in music. It's, it's folded into the music therapy degree. So you take theory, you have a principal instrument that you have a teacher for, and you play recitals. And um, so there's that aspect, the actual m- musical part. And that's hugely important, just as important as anything else in my opinion, I think in music therapy, often we lose track of the fact that music is an art. And it's a rich art. Some people say, you know, the therapy is only as good as the music. But the art aspect of music is a huge part of it. So that's always been uh, front and center for me because that's what brought me into music. The other parts are working with clients, working with individual clients, working with groups, studying all the different models of music therapy, and there are many, and... I'm assuming these are like codified methods like you'd have in any form of therapy, right? There's Mm -hmm. different types of... So... Yeah, so I'm I'm, I'm really... I've studied Carl Jung in Jungian analysis and Jungian psychology for about 20 years now, Mm. and just on my own, um, because I had an imaginal experience that was extremely um, real to me and life-changing. That's how I discovered Jung and started studying him. So there's analytic music therapy that stems from his work. There's, There's Nordoff Robbins, which is based on improvisation and using music to engage the musical self in your client. The given is that there, each of us has a musical self inside of ourselves. That I love. I love improvisation. So that's something I, I, uh, that really is important to me and that I, I enjoy doing. And that is, it's almost like a spiritual practice in a way. It's almost a high wire act is what it is. <laughs> yes. Yes. And yeah, True. There was a woman named Helen Bonney who started uh, the Bonney method of music therapy, which started with LSD experiments in the 60s that the CIA was doing. A full dose, not microdose like they're right, doing now. Right. And they would take, so they worked with patients, psychiatric patients, but they worked in a psychiatric hospital, I guess. And they were tested throughout their ordeal, you know, their trip. And um, Helen Bonney was there with recordings and quickly realized, she quickly realized that um, music was helpful to people. It really brought people, it took them on a journey and, and helped them deal with their, you know, whatever their issues were in their life. And so she began to discover certain recordings that were especially evocative. And then she built playlists like... Uh, you know, like a mixtapes of, of, of classical music. It was all classical music. And 
then they were based. So if your your goal is this, you would have a specific mix. But if you had a different goal, there would be another mix that mm -hmm. would be more appropriate for your journey. And so she did this throughout the 70s after LSD was uh, in all psychedelics were turned into Schedule One drugs. 1970, I think they shut down all the official experiments. So she quickly moved to relaxation, an induction that brought people into a relaxed state and kind of took out the LSD mm -hmm. aspect of it. And it actually seemed to work better because it could be less of an ordeal. It's still going strong today. In fact, um, I was trained in level one of the Helen Bonney method. Ah. And it's morphing as we go. And I'm working with a music therapist who is training to become level two or level three. I don't know which. And next week we're going to start sessions. I'll be her guinea pig. And we talk about what my goal is. Like, what, what, am I, what do I want to work with here? And then once that happens she picks the appropriate music i listen to the music and it's a guided meditation and so it's a non-directive guided meditation so she'll take me through whatever images uh, appear in my mind and then you know ask me questions about them ask me um, if i would like to explore that more or tell me more about that that kind of non-directive questioning and uh it's really, really useful. I find it to be. And then once that whole journey is over, you draw a mandala or a mandala. Then you talk about it with your therapist and kind of process it. And what is a mandala or mandala? A, a mandala, mandala is a, a picture of that you draw that is in a circle, essentially. Okay. Um, and Carl Jung d used these a lot. And... I'm, I know that there are different ways of interpreting them and that if you do, you know, artists know this, if you do, you know, if you, if you do some free writing mm -hmm. or free drawing mm -hmm. um, every day or on a regular basis over a long period of time, you start to see patterns. You see, you know, you, you're basically getting in contact with your unconscious. You're, you're allowing it to come out so that you can see what's there and it's work with it. You're providing a structure for what's there to just come out over time. And then you can kind of stand back, take it all in and say, okay, this is kind of what's going on here. Is that? That's absolutely right. Okay. Yeah. So that's the Helen Bonnie method, which I'm excited about. I want to say a little bit more about that because it uses our imaginations. And I feel like we are not using our imaginations to the extent that we we could and that I our imaginations have a lot to offer as far as healing goes. I think imagination is often it's a tool that's overlooked in healthcare. I hope that in the future we we begin to realize how we can help ourselves and others by using our imaginations. We have to imagine something before we can create it. We've all encountered the stories where certain people who have, um, and I'm not even talking about psychological slash emotional, they receive a diagnosis. The prognosis isn't very good. But, you know, some people will pray. Some people will meditate, etc. And some people will project. Mm -hmm. They see themselves as becoming whole again or healed. 
I'm not a spiritual person. I'm not a religious person. Me but neither. I do. You are? You are? I consider myself very spiritual, but not religious. Yeah. To me, it's kind of like I'm <laughs> very much into a world of causality, but I also know there are forces at work we don't understand. Mm-hmm. So. But to that end, if this is something that could help even a fraction of those people, something is worth doing if even a smattering, a, a sliver of people benefit as a consequence. Mm-hmm. I really believe that. You do feel better if you help someone you do. with that's, a struggle. Yep, you do. That's, you know? that was my, that's what got me into uh, uh, community records. That's what got me that altruistic. Yeah. And, and I know a lot of people in the helping professions are, they're kind of thrust into that role anyway in their families of origin. So that becomes a natural way because the way, you know, we learn how to survive within our, um, or we learn what is being asked of us as young people. Children are very aware that they are somewhat powerless and they know who has the power mm-hmm. and they know what the parents or whoever's their caregiver, you know, they know what's expected or what is needed and they, they deliver, you know, to the best of their ability. And then when we get out, of, out into the world, you know, that's imprinted on us, it takes a lot of work to change our orientation. And some people, it's really necessary because it's unhealthy to engage with the world that way. But I digress. Um, one thing that occurred to me was that people acquiesce to their roles in a family. I think my family, all families have dysfunction. Mine exactly. wasn't crazy dysfunctional, but you know, whatever. There are certain people who you made the point about then growing up and stepping out into the world. When you think about someone, for example, who has learned the role of less than and how that affects their own self-worth and it then affects choices that they make. Yes, that's powerful. It really is. It, it really, you know, our stories I told my girls the other day, um, we were watching a show on TV, and I'm like, I think life is all about stories. It's about the stories we tell. And they're like, Dad, please, can we just watch this show and not be <laughs> philosophical? But it is, you know? No, we're telling I... ourselves stories constantly. That's why I like those podcasts like The Moth or whatever, mm-hmm. where it's just we're writing our stories, telling our stories. We're repeating the same stories over and over. Right. Um, we're changing our stories. Right. It's all about stories. And, and the more we can engage our imagination um, to help us with that, the greater leaps and bounds we can make or whatever is needed, we can use our imaginations to do so. I actually read a couple articles. Like One was about Sophie's Place in general, and the other was about you and your, your role with that. Um, there was this survey that you put together with Meredith. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yes. Can we talk about that and what that was, yeah. the scope of that? Because I'm, I'm kind of curious because I know the response to it was overwhelmingly positive. That I recall. Yeah. So when I came to Mott and I got a tour of the hospital, I noticed that there was a baby grand piano in the lobby. And the lobby is this expansive, really beautiful lobby. It's so much, it's just a wash in natural light. And then there are Harry Potter-like candles hanging from the ceiling. They look like they're floating. Okay. And up on the giant walls are beautiful butterflies. Like, And throughout the hospital, there are images of butterflies. 
it's the image of transformation. Mm-hmm. And outside of Sophie's place, there is a uh, there's an art installation, and it's made up of um, butterflies created out of records, LPs. Mm-hmm. Isn't that the coolest? It's like a physical representation of music as a transformative. Uh-huh. Uh, element. The space is beautiful. The lobby is big and open and nobody's playing the piano. And I'm like, I must play this piano, you know? And so there was a little bit of selfishness in this, but also I'm a community music therapist. Community music is part of what I do. And so every day now between 12 and one, I play the piano um, in the lobby and it's amazing because it's, it fills this big open space with music and I connect with all sorts of people. People who I work with, you know, and um, patients, you know, they come down and um, I am able to engage with all sorts of people, caregivers, employees, and patients. And I take requests which is fun. And so with as far as community music therapy goes, one of my goals is to establish relationships in, in varied areas of the hospital. So I met with the head of law enforcement, law enforcement and community engagement at Mott. Uh, we met in the lobby and I told him about Sophie's place and he didn't realize that we had a studio, just didn't know. And so I started talking about it. He was like, okay, let's go. Let's go look at it. And, and so now I have this relationship with this person and we can build things out of that. Mm-hmm. And our relationship is built on not on the hierarchical structure, our levels of power or our levels of pay, but on music. That's a yeah. part of our authentic, authentic selves, you yeah. know? And so relationships based on music are different from relationships based on you know, your level of power or your status. Fundamentally, I think. Fundamentally. And so I see how that can, that can benefit everyone involved. Sure. Um, When you're working with someone who you have that sort of a relationship, your interactions are going to be a bit different than if you're working with them without that connection. So I meet people in the lobby and Meredith was like, well, since you're going to be playing down there, you know, you might think about Uh, doing a research project. So we just created five simple questions and asked people, like, you know, what what their role in the hospital is. Are they a caregiver, patient, or employee, or a vendor? It could be anything. Sure. And then if the music being played improved their experience. And it was just 99.9%. Yes, 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 yes. And I got all these great compliments about the music and also about just engaging with people in the moment. And, you know, we had that research project really drove home the power of music and how that can change someone's experience of space and time. Mm -hmm. I think you had posted something on Facebook about the Mott gig. I'm sure I did. Yeah, but as soon as I heard about that, I remember thinking immediately how powerful that had to be. What you're doing is if only for those five minutes, those 15 minutes while they're waiting, if only for that time, those people who happen to be in that lobby for that hour, when they leave that day, they feel slightly better, where maybe they don't start to spiral. Yep. And effectively, I'm guessing, like all good musicians, you read the room. 
Yes. That's one of That's the, the fundamental part. things that you have to do as a, as a performing artist is you have to read the room. Yes. Art, we create it and we consume it because of how, because of how it makes us feel. Yes. So you being an agent of that, I just wanted to thank you because it's that one moment of light where they feel the burden lift. Um, so I read a little bit about how, about how Sophie's Place came to be, but honestly, it's, it's funny. What I, what I find shocking, truly, you mentioned the law enforcement officer who didn't know it existed. I didn't know it existed. I live in this town. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know it existed until I read about you playing piano in the lobby. And then I'm reading about the studio and I'm thinking, this is fantastic. Yeah. And this do, is, this do you know is, why it exists? Sophie. Yeah. And she was, she, she had like a, was it, a, was it a, a rare? She had an undiagnosed heart condition and, and she passed away and she was 17. And she volunteered at a local hospital and she had considered music therapy as a profession. And her parents wanted to honor her. And so they, they got together. You know, they had contacted the Steve Young, Forever Young Foundation. Mm-hmm. And they worked together to put these recording studios in her name in pediatric hospitals across the U.S. There are, I believe, seven now. Ours was uh, number six, I think. And... I mean, for me, music is spirit. Music, you know, music f- floats on the air. So, so music is spirit, and, and we are in the hospital. If you think of the, the hospital as a, an entity, right, as a, a being, as if it were a living being, then we, sure. are, the, we are the spiritual... Corpuscles. Yeah, yeah. And we, you know, we, we deal with spirit. We are there when people are grieving. We help them to carry their grief in the moment. And also we help them to celebrate like great moments or and that is just as important. Sure. So it's it's sure. It's pretty wonderful. Yeah. And so they've the Bartons who who uh um were Sophie's parents have have done and Steve Young have done a wonderful thing and and really upped the profile of music therapists by by giving them, giving us these home bases. And the fact to have it incorporated in the hospital yeah. is everything because it's not like we have the space where we're going to do this and we'll arrange transit and we'll no. This is here. This is down the hall. It's up three floors. Whatever. It's here. Yeah. Right. I also read, if I remember correctly, that it's possible from the studio also to live stream like performances oh, yeah. that are being done. We have a giant green screen that comes down from the ceiling. It's so cool. Fantastic. <laughs> we have um, we have so many instruments that have been donated by individuals who have been following the progression of this over the years. My supervisor Meredith Irvine, you know, she was instrumental. But up. <laughs> I'm here all week. (laughs) In in getting Sophie's place, you know, into Mott and having it become a reality. There was like a music store that went out of business, South Lion or something, and they donated all their leftover stock. There are seven music therapists right now at Mott, including Meredith, and they're all funded by donors. The entire $1.5 million studio was donor-funded. 
Um, so this is all coming from the altruism of donors, of people who had the, the money to contribute and, and decided that this is what they wanted to do. There's a producer, too. Is that right? Yeah, Mark Whalen. He's a, our Sophie's Place producer. He is very skilled. He, he knows how to mix and do all the That's audio helpful. things, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but nobody in the hospital, really, I mean, the music therapist, nobody really has a background working in studios. I think I'm the one who has the most yeah. experience yeah. working in a studio. And yeah. so, you know, one thing I did was help to stock the studio with stuff. And in the studio, we do clinical improv. But we have groups. We have, like, drum drum circles. I want to create a listening group, you know, where we our focus is listening to vinyl and whatever else. I guess we can listen to other formats, mm-hmm. too. But I, I particularly love listening to vinyl because I'm old. You're not as old as I am. <laughs> I'm working with EVS, the Environmental Services. Okay. Discovering, like, how we can work together. My focus has tended to be at the beginning, since everyone's focus is on patients, naturally so. Sure. I have tended to focus, been focusing on employees and their strengths, their musical strengths, their, you know, creating these relationships. Um, There's a guy who does uh, voiceover work. Mm. So we're talking about how we want to incorporate that into what we do, maybe with story time. Um, I get to work with school teachers. You know, there are teachers on staff here at Mott. Um, Physical therapists, occupational therapists, uh, co-treating with nurses, techs. It's just, it's a fabulous creative, from my perspective, it's a very creative environment. And there's nothing like being able to help someone and like really help them with music. Before I forget, I think when we're talking about that and listening and how it affects us um, in the acoustics and neurological music therapy, mm. and I, that's a that's there's a whole branch of music therapy and neurological music therapy where it's all about what the body does with the sound. And I feel incredibly ignorant all of a sudden <laughs> because no, I, I seriously, like I said, I mean, I've read some of stuff from Oliver Sacks, mm-hmm. etc. But I haven't really, like, canvassed what's out there, you know? It's a lot. It's a lot. It's worth looking into. Uh, I work with neurologic music therapists. I work with people who are general music therapists. Uh, and um, I have to ask you something. And I know your father. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you, it had to have had an effect on you, but the idea that what you're doing every day, how do you think that's changed your relationship with your own kids. How does playing the piano in the lobby at Mott... For those people who are in such need of... Even more so, it's the, the individual therapy where I'm, I'm meeting with these children who are... Some of them are the exact age of my children, and some of them are going through horrific things. It's freaking terrifying. We work to be professional... Um, we learn to compartmentalize uh, things, you know, so that, and we, we try to not let our own emotional responses color the therapy. Um, but we are human beings, and, you know, we just, it can be called, uh, a lot of times it's called transference or counter-transference mm-hmm. when we're, we're experiencing as if 
they were, you know, as if this patient, if, if the transference is really intense, it's important to take a step back. If I recognize that there's some transference occurring, I talk to my supervisor and we talk through it and then we proceed accordingly. But to answer your question, it has made me cherish them more. It has made me realize the even more, you know, the older I get, the more I realize how tenuous life is and how, how we're all just hanging on. We're all just hanging on by a thread here. Um, and it's precious. Mm-hmm. Life is precious. Mm-hmm. And it underlines how important it is to make sure my kids know I love them. They know that they're cared for. Mm-hmm. And um, to find gratitude for for them and for life. Do you ever struggle with, like at the end of a day, that tank has gone dry and, and you don't really have that capacity when you get home to deal with that? Is that... I wonder. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've, I've definitely needed time to just let everything go, yep. you know, like... Uh, dad's not available right now. <laughs> that doesn't happen a lot. Um, you do have downtime, essentially. I do have some downtime, not much. I'm getting better at it, realizing that I need that. That's, a, that's another part, like along with learning that I need to address grief on a regular basis, I'm also learning that I need to recharge I can't just go, 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 right. go all the time. Right. There has to be, I mean, the thing I love to do, I love to read and just think, reading and thinking. And that is, when you have young kids, there's no time for that. That's right. You can't even go to the restroom on your <laughs> own, you know? And then and then when they get older, there becomes more time. And, but we get used to kind of, filling up our time and there are competing needs, et cetera. But yeah, man, sometimes it just, it just wears, wears you out for sure. Well, I noticed you brought the guitar and the ukulele. We don't have, I don't think a lot of time. And I know you probably have to get going soon. I'm I do. I, I think it's been a great talk. I want to thank you for taking the time to come here today. I really genuinely you. appreciate it. And there, there's just a bunch of stuff that I still wanted to talk about and you just didn't have time. No, there really wasn't enough time. I have to say I really enjoyed the conversation with Jesse. I hope you did too. But for now, it's time to bring the faders down and say goodbye from the subterranean playground. Until next time, peace. Tales from the Subterranean Playground is brought to you and produced by Immersify Recording Services, LLC.